Welcome to the Burt Cohen Show. And the dream got a lot better for a lot of people on August 4th, 2010, when a judge in California uh, said that, uh, well, things are going to get a lot better for people who want to get married, whether you're straight or of the same gender. I'm talking, of course, about the decision to strike down Proposition 8. And it means a lot to an awful lot of people. And it actually affects the question of reproductive rights. And I'm very pleased that our guest today on The Burt Cohen Show is Jessica Ahrens. Thanks for being with us, Jessica. Thanks for having me, Bert. Well, for background, uh, Jessica Ahrens is the director of the Women's Health and Rights Program at American Progress and a member of the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative. Sounds like an interesting combination, one that has... uh, Real Possibilities. She's been seen on MSNBC, Fox News, that's F-A-U-X, and ABC News, and heard on NPR and Clear Channel Radio, featured in the Baltimore Sun, The Nation, good old magazine, The Nation, Politico, Slate Magazine, Huffington Post, Science Progress, and RH Reality Check. Her publications include More Than a Choice, a Progressive Vision, for Reproductive Health and Rights and Future Choices, Assisted Reproductive Technologies and the Law. And I had a chance to deal with that last subject when I was in the uh, state Senate trying to get insurance companies to cover in vitro fertilization. Of course, they chose not to. They cover such things as uh, Viagra, but not uh, reproductive health. Anyway, uh, the decision, which was issued on August 4th in the case of Perry versus Schwarzenegger, contends that Proposition 8, which, which the voters approved in California, saying no gays cannot get married, uh, that that proposition violated the constitutional rights of equal protection and due process, and that the law, the, the judge declared that the law singled out gay men and lesbians for denial of a marriage license and enshrined the notion that opposite-sex couples are superior to same-sex couples. Well, clearly, LGBT rights groups have a reason to celebrate, uh, but according to Jessica Ahrens, uh, reproductive rights activists also have reason to celebrate. How do reproductive rights factor into Judge Vaughn Walker's decision to strike down that Proposition 8 law? Well, as I see it, uh, reproductive rights and justice include several core values, uh, including the right to make reproductive and sexual decisions for oneself, freedom from rigid gender norms, gender equity in all areas of life, and respect for parenting, regardless of one's characteristics like sexual orientation. And so Judge Walker's opinion, I'm sorry, Judge Vaughn. Yeah, that's it. 
Wait, Walker, yeah, Von yeah. Walker. Uh, his opinion touches on many of those aspects, if, if not all of them. Uh, he talks about the role that gender norms used to play in marriage and mm-hmm. how that's evolved over time. But, you know, what changed uh, were gender roles, not the institution of marriage itself, the essence of marriage. Um, and so even, you know, so now marriage uh, is... An, um, is coming together of equals, yeah. uh, regardless of gender, regardless of sex. Uh, and so you don't have those uh, gender roles um, restricting uh, men and women in marriage or uh, op- opposite-sex couples in marriage or same-sex couples in marriage. So that's one aspect, for instance. Another is that though sex, marriage, and procreation may be interrelated, uh, and they used to all kind of come together as one, that's no longer, those strands have come apart. They're not uh, a precondition for one another. So you don't have to be able to prove that you can procreate in order to get married, uh, that you know, marriage is about much more than procreation, and whether you have a biological capacity to procreate or not is not going to be a central question of the state in deciding whether or not you can marry. There, there are a number of ways in which these uh, these issues come into the opinion and into the decision on on gay marriage. So, if we're talking about uh, procreation, and you know, I look back on the relatively recent history of the institution of marriage, and it is not that old, really. I think uh, m- you may know better than I. My, my guess is that the institution of marriage as we know it today has only been around certainly less than five hundred years, which is not a really big slice of human history, but wasn't procreation part of the reason for marriage, or perhaps it was more political strength and power, you know, uh, that uh, 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 vast uh, fortunes would marry other vast fortunes? I don't know, but I, it, it does seem that procreation was perhaps initially part of it, but certainly an awful lot of people, uh, straight couples, do not procreate for one reason or another, maybe their choice. Right. Well, historically, marriage tr- traditionally was much more about property rights and, and legal rights than anything else. Um, it was about inheritance, about ensuring that the children, uh, that children were the children of a marriage who were entitled to inherit property. Right. Um, you know, women didn't have their own legal or economic identity. It was subsumed once they were married uh, right. by the husband. And, the hu- you know, women and children were essentially, in, in many ways, property of the husband. Yes. Um, and, you know, it was it was a way for um, families to pass on property mm-hmm. uh, and, and financial resources. Um, it, it was before DNA tests. No one had any way of knowing, uh, you know, whether a certain man was a father of children. And the way that they enshrined that in the law was by creating the institution of marriage. Now, over time, of course, our reasons for marriage have changed significantly, and that is no longer the reason that our country recognizes marriage and um, sees it as an important social institution. Um, and so, so the reasons for marriage have evolved over time and from one society to another. And if you look at marriage around the world, you see it in many different forms from the way we experience it here in the United States. Uh, there may be polygamy in some cases. There may be um, no divorce. Uh, women still may have their uh, legal and economic identities assumed by their husband. And we have moved past that in this country. Um, and so this is part of the evolution of marriage. The, the core of the institution has remained the same, but many of the trappings of marriage have changed over time. 
Uh, we are talking with uh, the Center for American Progress's Jessica Ahrens about uh, the historic decision. And this is history. You know, I know history when I see it, and this is history. When uh, Judge Von Walker uh, struck down the anti-gay marriage Proposition 8 law. And how, how does this decision affect that, that other issue of, of reproductive rights. I mean, this is something that just has refused to go away for a long, long time. And I have found over the years, uh, being a, a radio host as well as being a state senator for 14 years, I found it interesting. And I, I never could see quite the reason. But the people who came out against equal rights for uh, differently sexually oriented adults were the same people who were against reproductive rights. Can you shed some light on that connection there? I think it really does all come under this, this idea of gender roles. What are traditional gender roles? Um, you know, what, what defines a man? What defines a woman? Um, and in many ways, we used to define those things by economic role, by a man working in the economic realm and a, and a woman at home raising the children, by sexual orientation, by this idea that marriage contained one man and one woman. Um, and these, these roles are changing. So anytime people stop conforming to these rigid notions, Notions of gender. Uh, it makes some people in this country quite uncomfortable. Uh, they don't. They don't like it. They want to be able to cling to a sense of clarity around the roles of men and women. Um, and they, they really, I think, want to box people into those roles. Um, so that's why I, something people don't remember so much uh, anymore is that back in the 60s and 70s, uh, along with abortion rights, a big uh, ticket item on the feminist agenda was child care. There was a big push to make child care universal uh, and have the government uh, make child care available and affordable to everyone so that it would be easier for women to go into the workforce as they already were doing. And Congress actually passed something, and Nixon vetoed it. And it was part of Phyllis Schlafly and all the conservatives who, who fought abortion rights and other feminist agenda items fought child care because they said it was communist, it was the government taking over the raising of your children, and they, they used fear-mongering. And they've been using these strategies ever since. And so I think... Uh, same-sex marriage taps into these same fears about what are the roles of people in society, who is raising children, um, you know, are we going to have a woman at home and a man in the workplace, or are women going to compete with men on equal footing in the workplace, and are they going to share equal responsibilities in the home? Uh, and so our, our concepts of what the appropriate roles of men and women are have really changed very quickly in the last few decades, and that is that scares a lot of people. And it does seem that fear is a, a huge part of it. So the idea of uh, women having control over their own bodies, their, their, the, the very concept of reproductive rights uh, is something, I suppose, relatively new. I mean, the pill came along in 1961, and uh, that changed a lot of things. And it does seem that people, people are afraid of that. And, and some of the people on the right uh, use, quite frankly, I think, manipulate that fear to uh, to try to get votes, and one of the issues about you know marriage being uh, something between equals, a choice uh, that people make between equals, uh, and that gender roles are no longer the basis of marriage. That you know it's consenting equals. Uh, so it seems like that forms if. If we were to take, and this is, I don't know if this can be nailed down in law, 
But if you take as a given that this is the basis, the foundation, the consent of equals is uh, the basis for marriage, is the basis uh, for strong reproductive rights and equal rights to marry. If you, know, if you don't have that, frankly, equality, then you can have uh, a discrimination against gay people's rights to uh, equal rights to marry and, and reproductive rights. So it seems, once again, to boil down to you know, the, the old traditional male domination. And uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. Um, I, you know, it's interesting with this line of cases. Um, the the uh, one of the things that's historically significant about this decision, the Perry versus Schwarzenegger decision in California, is that it's the first time a federal court has ruled on same-sex marriage. Um, and there are a number of state courts that have ruled previously, but this is the first time the federal court has done so. And interpreting federal law, you know, it was based on two different. Um, right. pieces of, of the 14th Amendment, the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause. Right. And these are, are, these are where we find our fundamental rights. This is where um, the courts come in to protect our fundamental freedoms. Um, and the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause come up consistently in um, Griswold versus Connecticut, right. The, the right to birth control. Um, that was in 1965. Right. That was based on the Due Process Clause's uh, protection of the right to privacy. Um, Roe versus Wade was, again, on the Due Process Clause right to privacy. Uh, right to abortion was encompassed within that. Um, the uh, Lawrence versus Texas, um, where uh, states were no longer, where the courts, Supreme Court said states can no longer ban sodomy, um, that was, depending on whose opinion you read, either based on due process or an equal protection. Um, and now you've got Judge Walker saying, based on due process and equal protection, we can't deny gays the right to marry. Um, feminists have looked at the Griswold and Roe decisions and said, why, why didn't the court find a violation of equal protection there as well. Um, it's, it's all well and good that you you found a right to privacy in the due process clause, but this is this is about women's equal rights. So it's actually the point you were just making, Bert, that that in order for women to be equal to men politically and economically and legally, uh, they need to be able to control their fertility. They need to be um, they need to determine their reproductive course in life, when and whether they'll have children. Um, and, you know, I, I do see that as a fundamental aspect of equality. And, and some have, uh, the people who brought those cases argued for equal protection coverage as well as due process. And the court had decided just to go with the due process strand. But um, many have argued it would have been better if the court had also found a violation of equal protection. Um, and so we'll see if, if that ever um, gets some ex- additional life down the road. But, but these really are uh, critical elements of, of having equality, true gender equality in this country. And I have to uh, t- take a slight detour here in terms of uh, gender equality. I want to get back to some of the, the, the legal questions, uh, issues of privacy, et cetera. But I, I have to tell a story, which if I hadn't seen it and heard it with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Here, uh, this show is originating in New Hampshire, and uh, we were one of the relatively early states to, to pass uh, equal marriage so that uh, gay people can get married now and will not be discriminated against. 
and I attended the uh, hearing and, of, of course, spoke in favor of uh, equal rights, there were people on the other side. There was one guy in particular, a very large crowd of people against equal marriage, a guy who stood up and said, you know, when all this began, the problem began when women started wearing pants and not skirts <laughs> and dresses. I'm mm -hmm. not making this up. Uh, and not was that outrageous enough that this guy said it? A lot of people cheered. They actually cheered when this guy said that. So it's just, it does seem to come back that, that fear of losing male domination is what the right, the, the conservative right, reactionary right, is, is really uh, uh, afraid of. And I thought it was fascinating that the, the judge's ruling, some just a fantastic ruling, he said, and I believe this is in, in his uh, uh, ruling, quote, the exclusion uh, of gays uh, exists as an artifact of a time when genders were seen as having distinct roles in society and in marriage. And I think that uh, that that is what's going on. And the trend, I mean, think of the short period of time in which now, frankly, equal marriage rights is pretty well accepted. And if you're against it, you come across, I think rightfully so, as, as some kind of closed-minded bigot. But the issue of reproductive rights is still there, which brings us back to the question of uh, the basis for, for Roe versus Wade as well as the Griswold case, the, the idea of privacy. Um, my understanding of the Constitution is that the word privacy does not appear in the Constitution. It's not a right that's specifically spelled out. So I wonder, and you know, trying to look at uh, down the road when, when this decision, the uh, judge's decision in California is no doubt appealed and possibly goes to the uh, rather right-wing U.S. Supreme Court. What about this, this, the legality of the term privacy and that as a basis for uh, protection for reproductive rights as well as equal rights to marriage? Well, I think there's there's several open-ended questions right now. One is, will this case actually make it to the Supreme Court? Because the polls are showing that if the voters had to vote on Proposition 8 again today, they um, they would actually vote it down. The wonderful thing about this case, one of the wonderful things, has been that it's been a, a great educational opportunity. There's been it's been an opportunity for facts to get into the public debate over this issue, rather than the fear-mongering that occurred with the ad campaigns, the very slick ad campaigns that came out prior to the Prop 8 decision, the original vote. Um, and so, the you know, as Californians have become more educated about the issue, their opinion has changed, and they've become more in favor of granting uh, equal rights to marriage. Um, if they were to vote again, and this time strike down Proposition 8, um, it would moot the case. It would make it, um, there would no longer be a live action for the, the Supreme Court to rule on. So that's one way in which it might not make it up to the Supreme Court. Mm. A second scenario is, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't, as we know, have to take every case that comes that's to right. it. Um, they get to decide whether to take it, yes or no, and they need four votes to grant certiorari, which is the process where they say, yes, we're going to look at a case. Sometimes the Supreme Court likes for an issue to be able to percolate a little bit and to have a few different cases, a few different jurisdictions rule on an issue oh, before they take it up, especially if there's a division among the different circuits of uh, courts of appeal. Um, 
And so they might say, this is, this, you know, we want to let this go a little bit longer. This is the first ruling we've had in the federal court system, and we want to see what other courts do with it before we decide, you know, and so we'll take it up later on. That said, I think that um, this case is so, you know, has so much notoriety that if it does make it to the Supreme Court, it is very likely that they would uh, accept it. Uh, at which case, at which point, I think with the current court composition, it has about a 50-50 chance. Uh, there are four liberal judges, including newly uh, right. confirmed Kagan, and there are four cons- very conservative justices. And then there's Justice Kennedy, who's the swing vote. And some people have theorized that Judge Walker wrote his opinion geared toward Justice Kennedy, that he wanted Justice Kennedy to accept the opinion, and he wanted him to like it. So Justice Kennedy is the author of the Lawrence v. Texas decision I mentioned earlier ah. uh, that struck down the sodomy laws. Um, and he um, he has grown a little bit more liberal over time with regard to gay rights issues and more conservative with regard to reproductive rights issues. Hmm. So it's First of all, I think it's not likely that you, that with the current court's composition, we're going to see any backtracking on the right to privacy itself. I think that there's still a majority of the members of the court who see a right to privacy embodied in the Constitution, even though there isn't actual text that says there is a right to privacy. And by the way, I'll note something that often doesn't get mentioned when 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 conservatives say, "Well, there's no right to privacy in the Constitution; it's not written in there, and therefore there, it doesn't exist." There's also no right to travel in the Constitution, written into the Constitution. There are many rights we have that aren't explicitly written into the Constitution, and yet I think people take for granted and would be shocked if the government tried to impede those rights. And in fact, there is an amendment in the Bill of Rights that says just because we haven't explicitly listed a right in the preceding amendments doesn't mean it's not in the Constitution. So there are a number of you know, when conservatives, when the courts do something conservatives don't like, they call them activists and they say, oh, they're just legislating from the bench. They're right. making up the law. No, they're being faithful to the Constitution. They're reading the, the text and they're interpreting it as is their duty. Um, and we now have a long line of cases that establish that there is a right to privacy embodied in the Constitution. And and so, anyway, so I, I, of course, think that that's a perfectly legitimate reading of the Constitution. And I think most Americans would agree. I think most Americans take for granted that they have a right to privacy and that the government is not allowed to violate that right. Um, so I don't. I think we have a majority that would uphold a right to privacy. Um, now it's a question of whether the court, you know, will affirm the California decision, um, and if so, whether they would do it only on equal protection grounds, only on privacy grounds, on, or on some combination. Hmm. Well, they, there would have to be uh, appeals first, but I, I think it's a, you raised some very interesting points, uh, Jessica Ahrens uh, of the uh, Center for American Progress. We're talking about Proposition 8, Judge uh, Vaughn Walker's uh, historic decision to uh, strike it down. And uh, it, it, it's, there's so, it's interesting that the privacy, it seems that it was so understood it, back in the 18th century, it didn't need to be spelled out. It was something that people mm-hmm. just it was so obvious it didn't need to be spelled out, as you say, right to travel, you know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Judge Judge Walker's ruling is, part of it is based on the premise that in 
irrational majority, meaning the voters of California, I guess, can't be allowed to restrict the fundamental rights of a minority. You know, there are minority rights in this country uh, still, and uh, a lot of it, it's the the Constitution is there and laws are there not to protect the uh, the power of the majority, but specifically to protect the rights of a minority. So a, a narrow majority of California voters was told, uh, according to the the National Organization for Marriage, which seems to be the uh, lead group uh, against equal marriage rights. Uh, they, they've interpreted this. They're rather angry, as you can imagine. Uh, they were told, uh, they feel that the majority of people in California were told that their beliefs were too prejudiced to count. Uh, and uh, Judge Walker's ruling saw it in a, in a very different way. Uh, and they're outraged. The National Organization for Marriage says they're outraged that one man can overturn the votes of millions of California uh, residents. They say, and this is a quote from the National Organization for Marriage, with the stroke of one pen, all our work, all our loving efforts, all of our brave exercise of our constitutional rights was taken away from us. Your reaction? Well, my reaction is, first of all, that we are a democracy, but one of the things that's, I think, genius about our system of government and checks and balances is that might doesn't make right. And so, as you said, there are protections in our Constitution uh, that protect minority rights from majority rule. Uh, there are some things that we view as so fundamental that we are not going to put them up for a vote. Or if we do mistakenly put them up for a vote, the courts are there as a backstop to say, no, this goes too far. Um, and people are entitled to whatever personal beliefs they hold, and nothing in this decision restricts their First Amendment rights to express those views, and nothing in this decision uh, interferes with the right of churches to refuse to acknowledge or sanction things like same-sex marriage or anything else, you know, like divorce, for instance. Civil law recognizes divorce. Churches don't have to recognize it if they don't want to. Nothing impedes free exercise rights. Nothing impedes First Amendment rights in this decision. But what it does is it says you, you as a private individual can believe what you want, but the government can't enshrine that prejudice into law. We are again talking on the Burt Cohen Show with Jessica Ahrens of the Center for American Progress uh, about the uh, decision by Judge Walker and uh, the history making. And I, I don't know if uh, Obama and the Democrats even want this issue to come up right now because <laughs> it is so divisive. And President Obama, during his campaign, said that he was against uh, equal marriage rights. But uh, that may have been political could possibly be <laughs> a political judgment on <laughs> <Potentially>. his part. <laughs> I do think that was probably a political calculation on yeah. his part. I have no idea, of course, what he personally believes. But um, Judge Walker, again, said that, uh, you know, I mean, one of the defenses that the proponents of Proposition 8 said was that, um, the, you know, same-sex couples don't need marriage because in California we have domestic partnerships, and that's good enough. And Judge Walker found, as a matter of fact, that domestic partnerships are not equal to marriage in terms of both tangible and intangible benefits. It's not an equivalent substitute. It's like saying you're separate but equal. And the court has long said, the Supreme Court has long said, that our Constitution does not allow 
treatment, separate but equal treatment. Um, yes, so, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Separate but equal has been uh, ruled down again and again very, very yeah. clearly. Very, uh, a wonderful ruling that uh, I, I believe came out of the uh, 1954 uh, decision, Brown versus Board of Education. But that's it, right. Uh, another fantastic uh, moment in history. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the issues that the anti-equal marriage people speak about is the children, protecting the children, uh, and making sure that we have children. I, I just saw on a uh, video today uh, Martin Luther King's niece saying that the rights of gays to marry equals genocide because <laughs> without procreation, our society you know, ceases to exist, that, uh, that our future, our civilization, depends on, on procreation of children, of transmitting our civilization into the future. Is there any impact of the Walker decision on this aspect? It is a little nutty, uh, Absolutely in my not. I mean, it's just laughable. I, I just, you know, first of all, we have one of the highest rates, if not the highest rate, of unintended pregnancy in the developed world. True. So I don't think we have any, <laughs> we really have any legitimate fears of, 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 no, of no longer procreating because now gays are allowed to marry. I mean, it's just preposterous on its face. Um, this woman, uh, King's niece, she, she is, is notable as... Um, a proponent of this genocide theory uh, in in the abortion realm, she's come out a lot to say All that right. uh, that abortion providers target African American women, uh, that they put their clinics in areas where there's uh, high density of African Americans, and they lure them in, and they and they you know perpetrate genocide against them, and that and that black women are perpetrating self genocide when they have abortions because abortion rates are much higher for in the African American population. That's because again the the that there are higher rates of unintended pregnancy for African American women, um, and that is because there is still you know uh, ongoing um, you know residual outcomes of discrimination. Uh, when, you know they have uh, they don't have as good access to health care, to family planning services, and all of that. So so again, this is kind of Alveda King's thing. She talks about genocide. So now she's trying to find a way to connect it to gay marriage. And I suppose the idea that somehow the state might have to acknowledge uh, marriage for same-sex couples uh, is yet more affirmation that procreation can happen with, within or outside of marriage. Um, So it's, you know, that's, that's why they don't like it. But, uh, but it's nothing new. Uh, We've, you know, whether Gay or straight, people have been having children within the confines or outside of marriage for a long time now. And, um, and in fact, Judge Walker found that uh, if we're worried about the children's interest and about children being raised in stable households, uh, Proposition 8 is detrimental to that interest because it's not allowing couples who want to marry and make a lifelong commitment to each other and raise children together, it's barring them from doing so. So same-sex couples in California who have children have not been allowed to marry and are raising their children regardless of whether they're married or not. And actually, if you were to allow them to marry, you would be providing their children with more stability and, and more support, and that would be better for the children ultimately. I would think, and I remember, uh, oh, about 10, 15 years ago when uh, I was sponsor of a bill to to ban discrimination in in housing, employment, and uh, accommodations 
based on perceived sexual orientation. The other side, the opponents were saying, well, gay people, they just, um, how did they describe it back then? Something about that they... They, uh, they don't settle down. They're too promiscuous. That was the word they used. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting that back then they were saying, oh, they're too promiscuous, but when they want to get married and settle down, <laughs> you can't do that either. So Basically, you can't win. They, they think homosexuality is a sin, and they're going to oppose it no matter what. They, they've, they've made themselves seem softer on it. Uh, they say now, oh, people can do what they want in private, but we don't want the state to sanction it. But ultimately, mm. it comes down to this bias, this belief that homosexuality is wrong. And so they, they argue that, uh, in their uh, definition, perversion and abomination is never a civil right. It does seem that the uh, Lawrence decision in, uh, in in Texas shows that one person's perversion and abomination is nobody's business. You know, it's it's it is uh, what you do in private. The privacy aspect of this is not of interest to the state. Am I reading that correctly? Do you think? Yeah, oh, I, I mean, I've always found it interesting what they call a perversion and abomination when, in fact, many heterosexual couples engage in similar conduct to homosexual couples. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, I mean, again, it comes down to uh, the the sex or gender of the, the partner um, and whether they define it as, as sinful or not. And again, it does come back to this idea of what is a sin, which is a religious concept. Um, and, and they are perfectly entitled to believe it in their heart of hearts and to preach it uh, as much as they want. But but when it comes to the government, you know, to state action, the state can't legislate or enact laws based on religious opinions. Right. This is, you know, separation of church and state. Sep- wow, what a concept. <laughs> well, it's something that they're, I think, opposed to as well. They're, well, yes, they, 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 they're, uh, they believe in a separation of church and state when it happens to be uh, mosque and state. But when it's church and state, they'd like it to come together. My goodness, yes, that that this is a a Christian nation. And the the Texas school board had a lot to say about that, too, and and affecting the schools. And we, you know, they argue again about about the future of our children that I, I think both sides, all sides would agree that the state, the government does have an interest in uh, in, in children, in educating our children and making sure that uh, children are taken care of and that, uh, you know, it, it just an economic issue, really. It, it, it costs more to incarcerate uh, uh, people who commit crimes than it does to teach them and to have good uh, role models and good modeling uh, you know, to prevent children from becoming, uh, you know, problems to society. And uh, the detractors of equal marriage rights argue that it is in the state's interest to, uh, to have one man, one woman, and that they make better parents. Here's a softball, hit it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's another um, groundbreaking aspect of this court decision is that Judge Walker found, based on the evidence in the record, that there was there was no evidence that uh, opposite-sex parents are somehow superior parents to same-sex parents, that, again, it's really about um, uh, the love and nurturing and stability that they can give their children and that, that it, it, it doesn't differ based on gender. Um, that everyone, is, you know, is capable... You know, generally speaking, of being good parents, um, and so, of 
course, the state has a role in determining the fitness of parents, right. making sure that, that children aren't being neglected, that they're being cared for. Um, but other than that, you know, but, but gender alone or sexual orientation, those are not going, are determining factors. I, right. I think that that's a canard that the other side has used over and over again throughout the years, and it's been slowly but surely debunked in, in, in both um, equal marriage cases and in adoption cases and other cases where, where gays and lesbians are seeking equal rights and, and the ability to form families um, you know, without discrimination. Uh, we've learned through, you know, the, the evidence is, is, has shown clearly that gender is not the deciding factor and sexual orientation is not a deciding factor in one's ability to be a good parent. That's for sure. I mean, you look at uh, the child abuse and neglect cases now, the vast majority have been with, uh, you know, one man, one woman, and, and it's not a determinant at all, for sure. Right. Uh, Jessica, let me just ask also about parental rights here. The, the mm-hmm. no- National Organization of Marriage, again, argues that gay marriage under this will be taught in schools, whether parents mm-hmm. like it or not. Uh, parents have been upset through the years of the occasional case where a teacher is brave enough to have some children's book as part of the curriculum about uh, gay people getting married. Is this true or not true that there, that uh, the parents' rights over their children might be infringed by gay marriage being taught as something that's okay in the schools? Again, I think that this is, you know, the fear-mongering that we've seen. Um, that was a prominent feature of the Proposition 8 campaign. Um, and and it goes back, it taps into this um, stereotype about gays and lesbians somehow being pedophiles. And, you know, oh. back in the, in the 70s, um, when, you know, we started seeing a gay rights movement em- emerging, uh, you know, People well to this day, people could be fired for being gay. There's still most around around the country. There's not a lot of protections for gays and lesbians in employment. Um, but it used to be, especially if if someone was a teacher and happened to be gay, they could be fired. There was there was a lot of hysteria around the idea that they were pedophiles or that they would somehow, um, you know, convert children to be homosexuals. Um, and you know, I think the evidence is pretty clear that you know. Children are surrounded by messages about heterosexuality all the time, and yet some percentage of the population ends up being gay, despite these messages about promoting heterosexuality. So the idea that someone's going to be promoting homosexuality and that, you know, it's going to be this, you know, it's part of this gay agenda, you know, this nefarious agenda to convert our children, um, again, I think it's just clearly been discredited over time. Um, And the idea that because of this ruling, because the state must, you know, allow civil marriage for for same-sex couples, that that's now uh, going to be required curriculum in the schools, uh, again, is blatantly preposterous. I I mean, I don't know about you. I don't remember learning about marriage in school. Mm. It's not generally part of the curriculum, regardless of whether we're talking about opposite sex or same-sex marriage. So I doubt that it's suddenly going to be required reading. Um, I think that, you know, if people ask about it, you know, it's not inappropriate for a teacher to talk about it. And I think, you know, it is appropriate for the teacher to say that, you know, families come in all forms, shapes, and sizes. And, you know, as long as there's love, 
and security. That's what a family is about. I mean, but we have, you know, you know, they keep the, the proponents of Proposition Eight. You know, kept talking about the ideal. The ideal is, mm. you know, this norm: the the uh, one one man and one woman married to each other, raising children. Um, you know, I don't know if over time the, the evidence will even bear out that there is one particular ideal. But regardless, there are a lot of families that con- don't conform to that, you know, quote unquote ideal. We've got divorced families. We've got step parents. We've got uh, families uh, where children are created through the, you know, assistance from technology. Sure. So uh, we've got grandparents raising grandchildren. Um, again, I think it comes down to uh, parents who are able to support the needs of their children and nurture them and educate them and raise them with love. And, and that, more than anything, is what is best for children. And certainly the, the fear about this, the breakdown of marriage is, is what, the other side seems to be so concerned about. And, you know, the, the concept, things have been changing. I, I would argue that, uh, you know, drunken midnight marriages in Las Vegas are more of a threat to marriage than gay marriage. And, and, right. but, but then again, um, you know, there, there are, there is the minority, and we're talking really about protecting the rights of a minority here. I mean, homosexuality, as far as I know, is, you know, it, it's, it's a minority, always has been, but a significant minority. What about the parents who object to their kids learning, you know, somehow in school? They, uh, they, the National Organization for Marriage, again, see, I do my homework, uh, says it's very important that our children won't grow up to fantasize or think about, should I marry Jane or John when I grow up? You know, there there is a, certainly a a government role in protecting the common good of children, and I think it can be argued rather forcefully that, you know, gay or straight doesn't really matter. It's about whether you're going to be a good parent. But what about the rights of those parents who don't want their kids to learn about this? Are their rights being abridged? Well, you know, kids who go to public school are going to encounter... You know, it, it's a microcosm of of the general population, and they're going to encounter uh, other ideas and and different ways of living, perhaps than than what you know their own family you know follows. But but again, there you know you, you don't have to send your kid to public school. You can homeschool them. You can put them in a private school, a parochial school, uh, a place where you think people share your values and your perspective on the world, um, and and that's always an option. So I think the fact that just uh, that your children might be exposed to different ideas in a public school is not a violation of your rights to to raise them as you see fit. You can still teach them what you want to teach them in the home. You can still mm. have them go to your religious organization and learn your values there. Um, and you know, even even if they don't go to a public school and mix with different kinds of families. Um, you know, this is on the news. Um, even even if gay marriage isn't, you know, in every state, you know, there's still the debate out there. And so it's not like they're, I mean, you're really going to have to shelter your children if, if for them to never find out about this concept. And just knowing that somewhere someone, <laughs> you know, some same-sex couple is getting married or wants to get married, I don't think that really is a confusing concept to children. Um, mm. I just don't think that that you know provides them with a, an identity crisis about oh what who am I going to marry when I grow up? 
I, I think you're right, and it's not like you know those V8 uh, ads. Wow, I could have had a V8. Some somebody <laughs> right. It's going to be said. Go ahead. And it kind of just goes back to the point uh, that I, I think was made very clearly in the case in, in, in Judge Walker's decision. This is all speculation. This is nothing uh-huh. but speculation and fear. Um, and this is something that didn't have to be subject to cross-examination in the ad campaigns and in the voting that took place uh, where Prop 8 was, was passed. But it is something that has to be examined in a court of law. You can't just make a statement and not back it up. That's what happens in a courtroom is, is you have fact-finding. You have to provide evidence. The other side, they they withdrew all but two of their witnesses. Right. And the two witnesses they put forth, the judge found, were not credible. Um, and they, in fact, two of their withdrawn witnesses, I think two of, the, two of the witnesses were withdrawn because they gave testimony in their deposition that actually supported the plaintiffs, those who were trying to strike down Proposition 8. Um, that showed that marriage comes in a lot of different forms uh, around the world and that many societies have somehow recognized uh, some version of marriage for same-sex couples. So that uh, undermines the case. And um, and I'm forgetting at the moment what the other witness had offered, but again, in, their, in the deposition, right. oh, I believe it was that um, there was no evidence that same-sex parenting harm children. So um, they withdrew those witnesses, and they offered no explanation for their the testimony and the deposition being inconsistent with their own case. Um, I just I, they've offered a lot of speculation, but when examined, uh, you know, according to the facts, their their case just couldn't stand up in court. And fear is a very, very powerful thing, as as FDR famously said, that uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And we've seen fear manipulated tremendously. George W. Bush and President Cheney were very, very skilled at manipulating fear. And that's, you know, there's there's politics and, and you know, there's different part of government is uh, the judiciary branch, the judicial branch, that uh, it has to be... The fear is one thing, but facts are something else. And as Ronald Reagan, I think, said, facts are such inconvenient things that mm-hmm. uh, and, and the court really has to. It's one of the beauties of the Constitution that, that the, the judicial system has to be separate from the political realm and that fear cannot be a factor. It's a question of fact. Is it in the Constitution? Is it not in, in, the, uh, in the Constitution? And uh, I, I wonder where we go from here. Uh, you know, it may or may not be appealed uh, based on, I think, the, uh, the anti-equal marriage people who had such difficult time with their 10 uh, expert witnesses that only two of them made it in there uh, that I, I would think they might be a little bit wary of appealing it. But what, what happens if... If this goes again to the political realm, a lot of people are angry, saying that <clears throat> excuse me, the will of the people, which one could argue, I think, was based on on fear and irrationality, uh, but but the will of the people was was overturned. The people's vote, uh, you know, was kind of an insult that one guy can overturn this. Uh, Congress is is very sensitive to politics. What a surprise! Uh, and it's an election year, obviously. What do you think Congress might do here? This this might be an issue that uh, that, uh, that that certain members of Congress could could jump onto. Couldn't they uh, circumvent the court? And they're trying to do that, I think, legitimately when it comes to the case of uh, 
People's United uh, corporate speech. The, the Congress is trying to go around that outrageous ruling that said that corporations can spend as much money as they want. So Congress occasionally does go around the Supreme Court. What are your thoughts about that with regard to the, to the equal rights issue and the uh, reproductive rights issue? Well, conservatives have over time tried to amend the Constitution um, on both issues um, and have not successfully done so and haven't tried for a while. I think we could see it happen again uh, now because of this decision. Um, and, and that's really their only, that's the only place they can go because, um, you know, Judge Walker's decision is based on the federal Constitution. And if his ruling is upheld ultimately by the Supreme Court, it again would be based on the interpretation of the Constitution. And the only way you could then override that is by changing the Constitution. And you've heard conservatives Mm -hmm. put that forth with immigration recently, talking about, again, the 14th Amendment. They have a lot of problems with the 14th Amendment, which really ultimately fundamentally changed our our country and and brought it into the modern world and, um, and, and helped us, I think, achieve a lot of our ideals, get us closer to our potential for being, you know, treating everyone equally. But they don't like and that. For, <laughs> for those who don't, who aren't familiar with the Fourteenth Amendment, that basically says that if a baby is born in America, he or she is an American citizen. Yes, yes. Sorry, I was. Yeah, sorry, I hadn't gotten to that yet. Um, the, the part of the Fourteenth Amendment that they want to change in the immigration context is that they they want to take away birthright citizenship. They they want to say if you're in this country without you know illegally without documentation and you have a child, your child won't be a citizen, uh, which is just contrary to the the clear, plain text of the Constitution right now, and so they would have to amend it. So they've talked about amending it in that context. They've talked about amending it with regard to gay rights. They've been t- talked about it with abortion rights. Um, they They have what they call the Human Life Amendment, which would outlaw abortion mm. in the whole country. They haven't tried to bring that up for several years because ultimately it's a political loser. Uh, they're able to keep the abortion issue alive in a lot of other ways by incrementally restricting it. But to get rid of it altogether, people just don't agree with that. Um, with gay rights, similarly, I mean, they already passed a federal statute called DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, under right. Clinton. Unfortunately, Clinton yes. signed that law. Um, uh, that basically says even if a state recognizes gay marriage, the federal government doesn't have to recognize it. Um, and that would be called into question. I would um, think. By, uh, and it's been challenged. It's being challenged on its own in a separate proceeding, in, in two other proceedings right now, actually. Um, so everything is shifting. It's all kind of up in play. I do think that you will hear people run on it in November. I definitely think it will be a topic. And, in fact, all of these things, like Proposition 8 and similar uh same-sex marriage bans in other states, have been a strategy used by the right to drive people to the polls. So what they do is they say, all right, this is something that gins up our base. This is going to get people out, especially in midterm elections where people tend not to get as excited and aren't as likely to vote. We're going to put something really controversial on the ballot because it's pretty easy to get something on a ballot in some states, including California, which is why you're always hearing about propositions from California, because they have a fairly easy process for getting things on their ballot. Mm, We're going to put it on the ballot, we're going to drive out our base, and then they'll vote for the candidates that we like. Um, And that's been their strategy, and it's overall been a very effective one, and I think we're going to see it again this November, um, that they'll use this as as a way to get people to the polls. And it did work. I was just going to say, it worked in the state of Maine when when uh, the courts ruled that uh, gay marriage was okay, and and 
the voters were manipulated by fear again, and uh, I was shocked. But they, uh, yeah. the voters, uh, actually voted to uh, amend and take away other people's rights. How people can believe they have a right to vote against people's personal rights—it's—it's it's shocking to yeah. me. Uh, let well, me, California. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Say, Proposition Eight itself was a reaction to an earlier state, California state ruling, right, um, right. that under state law had, had recognized uh, same-sex rights. Right. And so, Proposition Eight itself was a reaction to that. And now we've got the court ruling. So it's a bit of a ping-pong ball, <laughs> and it's really unfortunate because fundamental rights aren't supposed to be subject to the will of the voters because of the manipulation that can occur in the electoral process. Um, but you know this. So we, this is not the last that we'll hear about this issue. I uh, jumped on my last question. Was going to be: is the, is the fight for equal marriage and reproductive rights at last over? I no, not. I think people uh, like me. Um, we we have, if nothing else, I have job security. These are issues <laughs> that I think I'll be working on for a long time coming. Unfortunately, I'd rather yes. be able to put myself out of business. But um, and unfortunately, I think that these are things that kind of get people's blood boiling. They, you know, because they go to the core of you know, who we are as a people, how we define freedom and democracy, how we define our own lives, the, the families that we form, the intimate relations that we have. It's all, these are all very core values that issue yes. at play. And so um, they're easy to manipulate, but they're also incredibly important to fight for. Absolutely. Jessica Ahrens, thank you so much for being with us today. You are with the Center for American Progress, and uh, I, I really appreciate your time on this, and uh, I'm afraid you do have job security. Thanks very much for being with us on the Bert Cohen Show. It was a pleasure. All right, thanks. And do email me with your thoughts and suggestions, Bert at thebertcohenshow.com. Thanks for being with us today. This is our first year. No one all around us We look into each other's eyes and understand why true love is in such demand I've got a gift wrapped We have got a course map and everything I've wanted since I met you Everything that's haunting me is out of I love you on our anniversary So that
Oh. 